Hello, and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today here in the bunker is nobody. This is being recorded in April of 2021, and Toronto is deep in a lockdown. But even though we can't hang out in a backyard and drink beer together, which is normally how we have our uh, Uncover-Up staff meetings, Lee, Ellen, and I have a running group text chat, which is often the way my day starts in the morning. A few weeks ago, Lee started my day by openly worrying about what would happen if there was a massive EMP burst over our city. For those of you less into doomsday scenarios than the three of us are, an EMP is a massive electromagnetic pulse, which could be caused by detonating a nuclear device high in the atmosphere, which would damage electronic devices and the electrical grid for hundreds of miles around. Back in 1962, during the peak of the Cold War, Both the United States and the Soviet Union conducted tests to see how EMPs could be used as weapons to destroy each other's infrastructure. Our morning catastrophizing got me to thinking about how much we take electricity for granted. In the bunker, I just assume that at any moment I can summon vast amounts of energy to turn night into day with electric lights, or winter into summer with electric heat, or summer into winter with electric air conditioning. In my kitchen, I have a metal box that keeps chicken fingers frozen, and another metal box right beside it that I can use to heat frozen chicken fingers up to hundreds of degrees. I can send and receive sound and images to and from the other side of the world instantly and easily. Basically, I live in a way that somebody living even as recently as 1856 would find borderline incomprehensible. And that's because, in large part, because of what happened in 1856 in a tiny village in what's now called Croatia. That's the time and place which produced Nikola Tesla, a man who would go on to reshape the world itself with his extraordinary mind and revolutionary electrical inventions. Now, none of this is shrouded in mystery or is up for any sort of debate. Tesla's importance to the modern world is clear and obvious. In his heyday at the end of the 19th century, Tesla was probably one of the most famous people on Earth, and while he sort of got shuffled out of the deck of history for much of the 20th century, Once the internet rediscovered him, Tesla became possibly the most famous forgotten scientist around, and now the image of his too-cool-for-school face can be found on t-shirts and mugs and postered walls of fashionable nerds everywhere. Tesla's epic disagreement in competition with fellow inventor Thomas Edison about the future of electricity has become almost legendary. And so... Tesla's story might seem at first to be more like mainstream history and less like the typical shady, shadowy, conspiratorial topic we normally uncover up here at The Uncover Up. However, by the time we get to the end of this episode, we'll be talking about doomsday devices, redacted FBI files, Cold War intrigue, communist spies, friendships with pigeons, and Soviet bombers, all of which sounds exactly like the sort of thing we specialize in. So let's get into it. This is all a test. Nikola Tesla was born in a tiny town in the Austrian Empire, the son and grandson of Orthodox priests. His mother, Duca, was known for her mechanical skills and her extraordinary memory, which are two qualities that young Nikola seemed to have inherited from her. When you read Tesla's own words about his experiences as a child, it's hard not to filter them through modern goggles and diagnose him with several disorders. For example, when he writes... Suppose that I had witnessed a funeral or some sort of nerve-wracking spectacle. 
Then, inevitably, in the stillness of night, a vivid picture of the scene would thrust itself before my eyes and persist, despite all my efforts to banish it. It's hard not to read that as evidence of post-traumatic stress disorder. When Tesla writes, I had a violent aversion against the earrings of women, but other ornaments, such as bracelets, pleased me more or less according to design. The sight of a pearl would almost give me a fit, but I was fascinated with the glitter of crystals or objects with sharp edges and plain surfaces. I would not touch the hair of other people except perhaps at the point of a revolver. I would get a fever by looking at a peach. It sounds to the modern ear like obsessive-compulsive disorder. When he writes of his love of gambling and states that he told his worried parents, I can stop whenever I please, but is it worthwhile to give up that which I would purchase with the joys of paradise? The modern reader might shake their head and say, uh-oh, clear signs of addictive personality disorder. And maybe there is some truth to all of that, but a better truth to take away might be the importance of recognizing the immense neurodiversity within the human species. There are a lot of different brains out there, and it's possible that if Tesla's mind had been labeled as broken when he was young, it never would have had a chance to be as inventive and productive as it would turn out to be. Because Tesla turned his neurodivergent mind to the question of electricity at an early age, when he watched his physics teacher perform some experiments. After contracting cholera and becoming extremely sick, young Tesla promised his worried father that he would recover if he had the opportunity to study. His father agreed, but only if he first spent a year getting fresh air and exercise. The combination of mountain air and the promise of learning about engineering seemed to be effective, and Tesla recovered from his illness and went off to a technical college in Graz. He excelled as a student in his first year. In his autobiography, Tesla mentioned that he would eventually find letters from the school written to his father, saying that if Tesla kept up his frantic pace of study, he would die of overwork, which is almost exactly the opposite of what I was like when I was a student. If a person could have died from overwork at school, then I would have become immortal through my laziness. A few years after uh, he started, he did have a kind of mental breakdown, writing, I could hear the ticking of a watch with three rooms between me and the timepiece. A fly alighting on a table in the room would cause a dull thud in my ear. A carriage passing at a distance of a few miles fairly shook my whole body. The whistle of a locomotive 20 or 30 miles away made the bench or chair on which I sat vibrate so strongly that the pain was unbearable. The roaring noises from near and far often produced the effect of spoken words, which would frighten me had I not been able to resolve them into their accumulated components. Tesla was unable to continue his studies and dropped out of school before graduating. When he recovered, he went to work at a telegraph company in Budapest, where he claimed he invented a working telephone, although he never patented the design or produced it publicly. His work at the telegraph company was clearly impressive, though, since his boss then got him a job in Paris working for Thomas Edison's company installing indoor electric lights. His ability clearly impressed his boss there as well, since when his boss moved to an Edison office in New York City, he brought Tesla with him, and it would be in New York City that Tesla would do his greatest work and encounter his greatest foil. Because Tesla would show up in New York City in the middle of a battle between two titans of American industry to see whose company would be lighting up the nation with electricity. On one side was the famous American inventor Thomas Edison, whose company had patented the first reliable electric light bulb. And on the other side was American industrialist George Westinghouse. Edison's people were furiously working on direct current electricity, while Westinghouse's people were trying to figure out how to use alternating current. 
And here's the part of the podcast I've been dreading, the part where I try to explain the difference between those two forms of electricity. While I do enjoy building electric guitars and guitar pedals in my spare time, I'm no electrician. So whenever I don't understand something, which is most of the time, I use metaphors to try to help me grasp the concepts. So that's what I'll do now. Imagine water for a second. You know that while water looks like it's a single substance, like all physical substances, it's actually made up of tiny particles called molecules. A water molecule is made up of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Atoms are made up of a nucleus, positively charged protons, neutrally charged neutrons, and negatively charged electrons. I I think there was an episode of WKRP that explained all of this, which is basically where I learned the small amount I know about atoms. When you have a material that conducts electricity well, like copper or aluminum, that's because the atoms of those materials each have an extra electron that can move from atom to atom. Like extra people at a wedding reception going from table to table. On the other hand, a substance like wood or rubber is made of molecules where the electrons stay put, like a really boring wedding reception where nobody wants to meet anybody new and everybody has a chair. Normally, the electrons in a conductor just move around randomly, but Imagine the DJ at the wedding puts a real banger on the turntable, and all those extra guests start moving the same direction towards the dance floor. This is sort of what happens when you run an electrical current through a conductor. The electrons start moving in one direction, although they do this because of a magnetic field rather than a hot summer jam. Once you have an electrical current, that energy can be used to heat an element or produce light or drive a motor or whatever. There are a few terms that are crucial to understanding electricity. Voltage, current, and resistance. Using our wedding metaphor, current would be how many extra people are moving towards the dance floor. Resistance would refer to how narrow or wide the room is. And voltage would be a measurement of how irresistible the draw of the song is to get people to shake their booties. In direct current, like Edison's people were working on, the electrical power moves through the circuit in one direction. Imagine the DJ is just crushing it with song after song that is always getting people to move in one direction, but when they arrive at the dance floor, they go too far and end up in the hallway, and then they have to circle back and go around back through the front door, whereupon the draw of the great songs moves them towards the dance floor again, and so on. Now imagine that there was a revolving door that everyone had to pass through. The current of extra wedding guests moving through trying to get to the dance floor would spin that revolving door, and that's basically how direct current can be used to drive a motor. But with alternating current, like Westinghouse's people were working on, the DJ doesn't just keep mashing play on the slappers, because every time they play a hit tune, they immediately follow up with a terrible song. So the extra guests are drawn towards the dance floor, then driven away in the opposite direction when the DJ plays something terrible. Unlike DC, where the extra party guests are always moving in one direction, with AC they alternate between all moving one way and all moving the other way. But regardless of whether they're heading to the dance floor or away from the dance floor, they still have to pass through that revolving door, which spins regardless of which way the crowd is headed. When Tesla started working for Edison in 1884, he was put to work to try to solve some of the issues with Edison's direct current system. In his autobiography, Tesla writes that Edison had offered him a large cash bonus if he was able to design 24 different types of machines which would aid in the spread of Edison's business. 
But then apparently Edison dismissed the promise as a joke after Tesla tried to collect. Tesla was upset about this, and he had his doubts about direct current anyway, so he left the Edison company and set up his own shop in New York City. After inventing a few more revolutionary devices, like the Tesla coil, which could produce high-voltage, low-current AC electricity, and uh, a wireless lighting system, Tesla was hired by Westinghouse in order to help the industrialist crush Edison in the race to build the electricity market. Together, Westinghouse and Tesla lit up the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, which must have made the millions of people who attended feel as though they had suddenly stepped into the future as they walked out of the darkness through the unearthly glow of the electric lights. Uh, This despite the fact that the Chicago mayor was assassinated a few days before the fair closed, and also a serial killer was operating a murder hotel a few miles away from the fair, because history is hardcore AF. Edison was furious at the publicity that Westinghouse and Tesla received, and the success they were having in spreading AC. Edison had been telling the press that alternating current was lethally dangerous, and to prove his point, he had been publicly murdering dogs, horses, and an elephant named Topsy with AC to show everyone that direct current was better. Edison had even been secretly assisting on the creation of the world's first electric chair using alternating current, hoping that negative publicity would scare people away from AC. Edison even suggested that the word used to describe being electrocuted should be Westinghoused. The chair that Edison helped to design was actually used on a condemned prisoner named William Kemmler in 1890, with horrifying and fiery and inhuman results that I won't go into. Suffice it to say, being electrocuted in the electric chair is cruel and unusual punishment. In the end, Westinghouse won the current war, mostly due to the fact that AC power was much cheaper and easier to produce, and it was easier to get into the homes. Edison would get out of the power business and concentrate on making moving picture cameras. And through all of this, Tesla kept working. He consulted on a massive AC generator in Niagara Falls, using the power of the crashing water to drive turbines and produce electricity. He accidentally invented the x-ray machine when he took a photograph of his friend Mark Twain while he was illuminated by a gas discharge tube. And by designing various electrical components such as motors, generators, conductors, capacitors, and turbines, Tesla was creating the building blocks of the modern world of light, transportation, and machinery. In 1898, he invented a system for radio control and built a prototype for a guided torpedo. By 1909, he had 100 patented inventions to his name and had started to shift his gaze from the modern world to the future world. When you read Tesla's writings from this time period, it's, it's a little creepy. In an age in which there had only been powered flight for about a decade and most of the world's transportation was still horse-based, Tesla was imagining potential technologies that will sound extremely familiar to the modern listener. For example, before 1920, Tesla was already describing the potential for building cruise missiles and intelligent robots. He wrote of the possibility of engineering a self-driving car. Of course, all of this stuff is impressive, but also sort of typical sci-fi material. Jules Verne also made some pretty accurate predictions back in the 19th century, too. But the thing that really caused me to literally whistle out loud in an impressed fashion, you know, like, while I was going over his writings, was when I came across his dead-on description for something that almost every sci-fi author totally missed. The internet. He referred to it as the world system, and he said that once it was completed, it could do the following. Connect every telegraph and telephone service in an encrypted manner, 
distribute news around the world instantly, allow private communication for personal use, distribute music freely and instantly, allow safe and instant banking for the worldwide exchange of money, support a system of navigation to allow ships to know exactly where they were on the globe as well as the location of their fellow ships, and instantly reproduce images and recordings. He's describing social media, news websites, iTunes, online banking, GPS, and YouTube at the beginning of the 20th century. It's extraordinary. But he didn't stop there. Check out the U.S. patent number uh, 1655113 from 1928. It's one of Tesla's, of course, and it's uh, designed for a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Again, this is at a time when rickety fabric-covered biplanes are still lurching around. VTOL aircraft wouldn't show up until decades later. Of course, here's the thing. Just because he could conceive of the idea and patent it doesn't mean that it would be a feasible aircraft. And looking at the blueprints based on my limited knowledge of aerodynamics, I would have to say I don't think an aircraft based on Tesla's plans would have been particularly controllable or safe. It's basically a biplane wing with an engine, with a pilot in the middle. With no tail or vertical stabilizers and a massive engine and propeller, the Tesla copter would likely have been wildly unstable if it was able to fly at all. But inventing the helicopter wasn't Tesla's main interest. Instead, at the beginning of the 20th century, Tesla was trying to figure out a way to turn the planet Earth itself into a massive electricity generator, and then to transmit that power wirelessly and freely through the air to everyone like a radio signal. In 1899, he built an enormous Tesla coil in Colorado Springs. He thought it would be a way to transmit power remotely and also to transmit and receive communication signals. The tower was so sensitive, Tesla claimed he could use it to detect the electrical discharge of thunderstorms hundreds of miles away. He hooked up a doorbell to the device so that it would chime whenever it detected an electrical disturbance. Then, one night as he was working in his lab, the chime went off once then twice, then three times. He would later write of those chimes, My first observations positively terrified me, as there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural. I felt as though I were present at the birth of a new knowledge of the revelation of a great truth. After considering and then discarding the possibility that there was some natural cause of this pattern, such as sunspots or the aurora borealis, he wrote, the thought flashed upon my mind that the disturbances I had observed might be due to intelligent control. Although I could not decipher their meaning, it was impossible for me to think of them as having been entirely accidental. The feeling is constantly growing on me that I might have been the first to hear the greeting of one planet to another. Some later speculated that the intelligent control that Tesla had detected on his equipment was actually much closer than another planet, that instead of picking up Mars, he was actually receiving a transmission from Guglielmo Marconi, who was performing radio experiments at approximately the same time Tesla heard his mysterious signals. However, Marconi was using battery power for his transmitter, which wouldn't have been powerful enough to transmit from England to Colorado. In addition, Marconi was using a much higher frequency than the VLF waves that Tesla's equipment was tuned to. As it turns out, the most likely explanation for Tesla's signals is an extraterrestrial one, although not an alien one, unfortunately. Jupiter has a moon called Io that passes through a region of charged particles as it orbits Jupiter, and this can cause the exact VLF signals that Tesla picked up. So while he probably didn't make contact with an alien race, Tesla did invent radio astronomy two decades before anyone else. 
1901, Tesla received $150,1901, about $4.7 million in 2021 dollars, from banker J.P. Morgan to construct another experimental tower on Long Island, New York. Wardenclyffe Tower, as it was called, was almost 190 feet tall and topped with a strange sphere that was 55 feet in diameter. According to Tesla, the tower also continued down into the ground with a steel-lined shaft driven 120 feet into the earth so that, in Tesla's words, he could have a grip on the earth so the whole of this globe can quiver. But before he could make the globe quiver, he started running out of money. There had been a stock market crash in 1901, and J.P. Morgan was uninterested in contributing any more money into a project that wasn't promising any kind of financial returns. On July 14, 1903, J.P. Morgan sent a wire to Tesla that no more money would be given to him. That night, and for several nights afterwards, Wardenclyffe Tower lit up the sky with an odd light. According to the New York Sun newspaper, All sorts of lightning were flashed from the tall tower and poles. The air was filled with blinding streaks of electricity, which seemed to shoot off into the darkness on some mysterious errand. By the end of the decade, many of Tesla's patent royalties had expired, and his financial backers had fled. In 1911, Wardenclyffe Tower was largely abandoned, and the structure started deteriorating. In 1917, in order to partially pay back some of Tesla's debts, the tower was torn down and sold for scrap. Tesla moved into various hotel rooms, staying at each until he was thrown out for not paying his bills. Finally, in 1934, he moved to the Hotel New Yorker, and the Westinghouse Company started paying his rent and giving him living expenses every month, which was a small price to pay for the immense wealth that Tesla's inventions at work had brought that company. By this time, Tesla was spending most of his time in the company of pigeons, which by all counts both he and the pigeons found very satisfying and enjoyable. There was one pigeon in particular about whom Tesla would write, I loved that pigeon as a man loves a woman, and she loved me. As long as I had her, there was a purpose to my life. But it wasn't all pigeons. He wasn't done with inventing quite yet. In 1934, at a party held in his honor, Tesla informed the world that he had designed a weapon that was so devastating and terrible that it would prevent any future war by making war so destructive as to be unthinkable. According to a New York Times story from July 11 of that year titled Tesla at 78 Bears New Death Beam, Nikola Tesla, father of modern methods of generation and distribution of electrical energy, who was 78 years old yesterday, announced a new invention, or inventions, which he said he considered to be the most important of the 700 made by him so far. He has perfected a method and apparatus, Dr. Tesla said yesterday, which will send concentrated beams of particles through the free air of such tremendous energy that they will bring down a fleet of 10,000 enemy airplanes at a distance of 250 miles from a defending nation's border and will cause armies of millions to drop dead in their tracks. Tesla tried to sell the plans to his new superweapon to the governments of the United States, USSR, Britain, and Yugoslavia, but received no takers. The British government was interested, but they wanted to see the plans before spending any money, and Tesla refused. The British instead went off and tried to design their own death ray, offering a £1,000 reward to anyone who could build a death ray that could kill a sheep from 100 yards away. British scientists Robert Watson Watt and Arnold Wilkins worked on the project for a month before coming to the conclusions that, one, the death ray was impossible, and two, while they had been trying to build one, they may have accidentally stumbled onto something else extremely useful. That something else they had discovered was eventually turned into radar, which was instrumental during the Battle of Britain in fighting back against the German bomber raids. 
Before the war, Japanese General Yamamoto tasked a prominent Japanese physicist, Yoji Ito, to investigate the possibility of building a Tesla-style death ray. After some experimentation, Ito concluded that it wasn't possible to generate the amount of energy that such a weapon would require. However, Japanese scientists thought that a death ray using microwave beams might be feasible, and so Project Kugo was launched. Early experiments showed that the microwave death ray could cause lung bleeding and brain damage, but only after prolonged exposure. Since bullets could easily do the same thing almost instantly, the project faltered. Halfway through the war, Nikola Tesla passed away. He died on January 7, 1943, in his room at the Hotel New Yorker. His nephew, Sava Kosinovich, was the Yugoslavian ambassador to the United States at the time, and was in New York when Tesla died. When he heard of his uncle's death, he immediately hired a safecracker and went to Tesla's room to, he claimed, receive some personal papers. The FBI got wind of this and panicked. What if the death ray was real and the plans for it had just fallen into the hands of a foreign power? Hitler, in particular, was obsessed with building high-tech offensive and defensive weapons, many of which sounded like they were torn from the pages of science fiction novels. Suddenly, Tesla's papers were a matter of national security, as can be seen in some of the FBI memos from Agent Percy Foxworth in the days after Tesla's death. The FBI had no jurisdiction over taking the personal property of a U.S. citizen, so instead they sent agents from the Office of Alien Property to get the papers back from Kosinovich and round up all the rest of Tesla's notes and equipment. The FBI briefly worried that Kosinovich might be a communist spy and considered arresting him, but decided that arresting an ambassador for no good reason wouldn't look very good to the international community. Government agents made microfilm of some of Tesla's sketches, schematics, and blueprints. Of course, since Tesla had been a naturalized U.S. citizen, the Office of Alien Property had no right to impound his belongings either, but there was a war on, and J. Edgar Hoover wasn't the sort of person to let the American Constitution get in the way. An MIT scientist named John Trump, and yes, he was Donald Trump's uncle, no kidding, was brought in to examine the papers, and was reportedly unimpressed, saying that the material was mostly speculative, philosophical, and promotional rather than practical. After looking through the papers, Dr. Trump received word that a hotel a few blocks away had a piece of Tesla's equipment that he had left there. When he and some federal agents arrived at the hotel, the manager handed him a note from Tesla that said the piece of equipment was worth $10,000, and that the box it was kept in would explode if it was opened incorrectly. The hotel staff wisely left the room, as did the other federal agents, and Dr. Trump was left alone with the box. Later, he would remember staring down at the brown paper-wrapped package and thinking that it was a beautiful day outside, and that he should be outside in it, rather than standing in a hotel holding what might be a bomb in his hands. However, according to Trump, the box wasn't wired to explode. When he unwrapped the brown paper covering and opened the box, inside was nothing more than a common circuit tester device. It's difficult for us to know exactly what to make of Tesla's claims in the later years of his life. Because he worked alone rather than in a community of fellow scientists, there was nobody else who could have been asked about the progress or lack thereof that he was making. His death ray plan, from what I can gather, was not a laser. Instead, it was a particle gun that would fire off a stream of tiny little pellets at an extremely high speed using some sort of powerful magnetic repulsion to propel the pellets. Well, I don't know many details, I do have some practical questions. Setting aside the question of how the propulsion would have worked, which I'm not smart enough to understand anyway, I'm not sure how this weapon would have been aimed. Without extremely accurate radar technology, which wouldn't emerge for another few years, it would have had to have been aimed by sight. 
And there's something about the idea of a high-powered nozzle firing streams of magnetically propelled particles at thousands of miles an hour being aimed by a guy looking through a telescope with crosshairs drawn on the lens that makes me think that maybe this whole plan isn't going to work. But, after World War II ended, the Cold War started. And during the Cold War, there was literally no plan that was too crazy not to be considered by either the Soviet Union or the United States. And if one side considered it, the other one had to consider it as well, just in the off chance that there was a method to the madness. This is how the American Air Force ended up spending millions of dollars on telekinesis research. As far as Tesla-influenced projects go, the Americans had Project Nick in the late 1940s, which looked into the feasibility of beam weapons as a defense against Soviet bombers, and the DARPA Project Seesaw, which lasted from the 50s to the 70s, and which was so ridiculous and terrifying that I think we'll have to do an entire episode on it. Meanwhile, in 1960, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev said that a new and fantastic weapon was in the hatching stage, which caused more than a little concern at the Pentagon. By the 1970s, some American defense analysts were arguing that the Soviets had set up a massive death ray laboratory in southern Russia, possibly using plans stolen from Tesla. The Americans responded with the Strategic Defense Initiative in the 1980s, which would go on to cost billions of dollars and accomplish almost nothing. The SDI project was also known at the time as Star Wars, and it was an attempt to try to put particle weapons or lasers in space to shoot down Soviet missiles. And finally, sitting up in the wilds of Alaska is a massive array of antennas pointing to the sky that DARPA built in the 1990s. The antennas are powered by five diesel locomotive engines and can fire energy into the upper atmosphere. The program is known as HARP, and that is also a topic for another episode. Was Tesla a genius? Without question. It's also without question that his work with electricity shaped the modern world as we know it today. But what about the idea that he had invented a superweapon? The 20th century superweapon was being produced in the early 1940s, but it wasn't Tesla's beam weapon. Instead, it came from a field of physics that Tesla dismissed as nonsense, Einstein's theory of relativity. Tesla was a genius, but even a genius of Tesla's formidable caliber has some weaknesses. One of Tesla's was a reluctance to move from the 19th century electromagnetic physics that he had mastered to the uncertain world of quantum physics and atomic theory of the 20th century. The frantic panic over Tesla's plans and blueprints probably says more about the paranoid and dangerous times of the 1940s and 50s than the actual utility or usefulness of Tesla's death ray. Interestingly, even though he was wrong about atomic power, Tesla described its impact back in 1917 when he wrote, A few years hence, it will be possible for nations to fight without armies, ships, or guns, by weapons far more terrible to the destructive action and range of which there is virtually no limit. Any city at a distance whatsoever from the enemy can be destroyed by him, and no power on earth can stop him from doing so. And of course, Tesla was totally correct about this. <laughs> 